Well, you should have a set of notes. I hope you do. There's some extras if you don't. And we are in Exodus chapter 3, if you would turn there. This is my favorite passage in the Old Testament. Uh, I, I have people joke and say I say that about all the texts, but this truly is. Exodus 3, if this doesn't excite you, nothing will, even at this early hour. Uh, Exodus chapter 3. As you turn there, I just want to highlight a couple things coming up. Let's see if I can get this thing to work. Uh, we are sponsoring this ministry, Iron to Iron, is sponsoring an evening October the 28th with Dan Wallace. Uh, Dan Wallace is currently the president of the Evangelical Theological Society. He is the founder and director of the Center for New, the Study of New Testament Manuscripts, which literally means they go around the world digitizing manuscripts, and they have discovered New Testament manuscripts that have never been known. They've been stuffed away in a shoebox in some library or monastery. And he's also a senior professor, distinguished professor at Dallas Seminary. Uh, this is a who's who. And to have someone of this caliber come into our city is uh, exciting. Uh, the reason this is, can happen is his assistant was a former student of mine, and I called Rob, and I said, you owe me big time. Uh, I want Dan to come, and, he, and uh, Dan said, yeah, I'd be happy to do that. So October the 28th, it's an evening event. It is a dessert reception. It does not cost, and uh, it's open to spouses if you're married, uh, teenagers and up, preferably, on the age limit. But uh, he's going to be addressing how do we know what we have in the New Testament is actually what was recorded 2,000 years ago. And uh, he has debated uh, numerous scholars on this. He's been on CNN, Fox, you name it. Uh, so to have this guy in town is just spectacular. Uh, it sounds dry. And in, in one sense, my wife goes, is he, can he speak? I said, yes, he can speak. All right. He's an incredible speaker. And um, uh, just think the world of Dan. And so for us to have him, we're, we're just thrilled. We have 200 seats. There is only 30 left. Uh, so we've been announcing this to you as a group, but I know some of you are new. Uh, if you've not signed up or you didn't hear about this before, uh, we have some brochures at that table, but I'd encourage you, don't miss this. It, it's just great. And if you have a teenage son or daughter or a college kid who's really struggling with the truthfulness of the text or the accuracy of the text, this is a bring, drag them along because this is a and Dan's not afraid uh, to deal with the difficult issues. So, um, yeah, hope, hope you uh, are going. I'd love to have you. Well, let's go to the text. In chapter 2, we, know, we looked at, if you recall, Moses spends 40 years. We looked at this. Um, 40 years he is spending in Egypt, being raised, and then 40 years in the wilderness and the Midianite territory, which we've addressed. And now we see, uh, we're going to see him leading into the Exodus. But I, I want to start in chapter 2, verse 23, just to lead us up into 3, because some break the division there instead of at the beginning of 3.1. It happened during the long period of time that the king of Egypt, that's Pharaoh, of course, died, and the Israelites groaned because of the slave labor. They cried out, their desperate cry because of the slave labor went up to God. And God, watch this, he heard, he remembered the covenant, which is going to be mentioned four times in this text. All right? It's, that's vital. God keeps his promises. 
with uh, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and God saw. So did you hear that? He heard, he remembered, he saw, and God understood. Not that he didn't understand before. That term is loaded. It's more as if he's, he's, he's intimately now uh, involved with what's happening. Now, we get to the text. Moses was shepherding, and we talked about shepherding before. This is God's training ground. It took 40 years to, to whip Moses into shape. Uh, remember that shepherding was uh, a detestable job to the Egyptians. So for Moses to, to change his mindset after 40 years of being trained in the, the palace, right, uh, and now to have to be a shepherd, the flock of Jethro, the father-in-law, or Roel, he goes by two different names, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the desert and came to the mountain of God to Horeb. You might know it as Sinai. The, t- the terms are used interchangeably. The angel of the Lord appeared to him, and we'll talk about who that sucker is, and a flame of fire from within a bush. He looked, uh, the Hebrews emphatic, look, oh, there it is, right? And the bush was ablaze with fire, but it was not being consumed. Now, I've spent some time in this part of the world uh, in some of the hottest times, because when you take college students, you have to do it in the summertime. And it is very barren. It is very dry. And if there's a bush on fire, that sucker is going to be consumed in nanoseconds. All right. And Moses catches this because watch his response. Moses thought, I will turn aside to see this amazing, the great sight. In other words, there is no human explanation for what's happening right here. And already the, light, the, the music's going on, right? Something's happening. And why does this bush not burn up? When the Lord saw that he had turned aside to look, God called to him. Notice who, by the way, is the subject and who is the object. Who's doing all the action? God, right? It's God who met this obscure shepherd in some remote part of uh, the Sinai Peninsula. Uh, modern terrorists lurk in these, these mountains. <laughs> it's very barren. It's easy to hide. He turned aside to look, and God called to him from within the bush and said, Moses, Moses, and God is not stuttering. Uh, it's used for emphasis. And Moses said to him, here am I, which is such a, uh, that phrase cursed so many times when individuals encounter God in the Old Testament. Think of Isaiah 6. And God said, do not come near here. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you're standing is holy. That's the first time in the scriptures the word holy is used. You won't find it in Genesis. Never. It's the first time. It's interesting. We'll talk about that term in a minute. And he also said, I am the God of your father. And watch this. The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Then Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. That will change as he grows in his walk with the Lord, won't it? He will ask to see God's face. But as we move through this and we look at Moses, and I don't want you to miss this, this is the first interchange between God and Moses. Up until this point, you won't find God mentioned. He's subtle in the book of Exodus, right? Now all of a sudden he comes out of the woodwork in some remote part of the Middle East. God will commission Moses, and we're going to look at chapter 3 this week and chapter 4 next week, but in this two chapters, three times, Moses will be commissioned 
Four times, God will tell Moses, go. Right? Third time's the charm. <laughs> Four. Right? And as we look at this, Moses raises five sets of objections in the text. And that's there in that opening paragraph, and you can read that. But I want to read the last sentence to you. Ultimately, God's interchange with Moses reveals a God who cares deeply for his people, a God who keeps his word, and a God who demonstrates unbelievable grace. If you're struggling, think about what God is doing in, in, in this, this whole scene for his people. Now, as I've mentioned, we are at Mount Horeb, which is Sinai, probably in this region. Uh, the Midianite territory is on the other side of the Gulf of Aqaba, though it could carry over around from uh, modern day uh, a lot and around uh, into what is now modern Israel, or excuse me, <laughs> oops, <laughs> my Israeli friends would like me to say that, uh, modern Egypt. Uh, yes, we won't go there. <clears throat> yes. Um, and we are much further down where modern Israel, even even uh, ancient Israel boundaries were, were brought, because there's Beersheba. Remember, the, the territory is from Dan to Beersheba. Dan is way up in the north by modern Lebanon and down to Beersheba. So we're, we're much further down in the territory that God is going to be giving the people of Israel. And we'll see that as we move along. In your notes, I mentioned under verse 2, the angel of the Lord or the messenger of the Lord uh, is an interesting figure in the Old Testament. Most, uh, I should say, many scholars see this as a pre-incarnate Christ. The reason they say that is the, the messenger or this angel of the Lord is often referred to as God. They're seen as interchangeable in, when humans interact with this angel. Not, he's not just any angel. He's the angel of the Lord. And, and that's vital. Questions on that? Because that's key. Uh, this angel, as we're going to see, when he speaks, people see him as God. And this angel, unlike the angel of Revelation, when John tries to worship him, remember that scene? The angel says, whoa, don't worship me. I'm not God. This angel has no problem being called God. And that's significant in the text. Yes, I saw a hand. Kyle. Okay, so that's what we see here. And as I mentioned there in your notes, and I have a screen for it, God's unexpected visit to the shepherd in the remote part of the Middle East demonstrates the Lord can show up, and this is key, wherever he pleases, whenever he pleases, and to whomever he pleases. Right? Why did God choose us? Right? It's God's grace. It's His timetable. Yes, Rock. Why, why did He go um, uh, the Gulf That's a great question. Probably the, the lower level, the lower grounds, the grass is drying up. If I take you to Israel in March, it's gorgeous, it's green, it's beautiful, April, May. But by the time we get to June, it's brown. Uh, <clears throat> and uh, that's the Israel that most tourists know because by the time they go in June, it's, it's dead. But if you go in March, April, and May, first part of May, it's, it's green, it's lush, even out in the wilderness. Those hills are green. So, uh, it, then it, so the shepherds have to move, keep moving the flock further and further up to, or to water sources. So that's why, why he's doing so that. No, most of these shrubs slash bushes, and there's a debate on what type of bush this was, they're going to be dead. You won't see leaves on them. Yeah. 
Yeah, I saw it. Yeah. Much significance to Jethro being a priest? Uh, I was afraid someone would ask that. Um, you know, the king of Salem, Melchizedek, is a priest of the Most High God. Right? I, I, sometimes we, at least for me, I think only the Hebrews worshipped Yahweh, but we see other Semitic groups that understand Yahweh to be the Lord. King of Salem, I think here we have a priest, he's, he's representing his people to God as the patriarch of his family, his dynasty. Remember, the Midianites are descendants of Abraham. Remember, Sarah dies, Abraham remarries. We sometimes forget that. Um, he's old, <laughs> but he still can have children, and he did, right? And uh, Midianites descend from uh, Abraham's second wife. Um, so we do see individuals that are worshiping the Lord through this. As he approaches uh, Moses and he mentions that I am this, this, this covenantal God, it reminds me that, listen, God has not forgotten his people. And, and that's why I read to you chapter 2. He's fully aware. In fact, 40 years prior, well, actually about 80 years prior, he made sure that a little baby who he was going to have as a leader was protected by the name of Moses. And I don't know about you, but after eight weeks, I wonder where God can be. <laughs> Try 80 years, right? And for the Israelites, it's 400 years of slavery. Genesis chapter 15, God said to Abraham, your descendants will be slaves for 400 years. So get ready. So um, that's a lot of generations. That's a lot of generations. Well, in verse 5, we have the word holy, which is so significant. Uh, um, in the Hebrew, Adama is dirt or earth. Adam is man. And the dirt is more holy than the man here in this scene. Why? Not because soil on Mount Sinai is more precious. And I've had students take up little vials and get the dirt. Yay for you. You know, um, it's because God's present. That's why it's holy. Remember Uzzah? They're moving the ark, the, co the covenant. And that's that. First of all, they shouldn't have been moving it on a cart. And the, the, people were viewing it, which shouldn't have been done. So everything was wrong, right? And Uzzah, the, the cart moves and that ark starts to fall. And Uzzah reaches out and God zaps Uzzah dead. And I love R.C. Sproul. He said, Uzzah assumed his hand was more holy than the dirt. And Moses gets a, a good lesson early on about what is truly holy, who is set apart. Victor Hamilton, there in your notes, the Lord calls Abraham to be blameless, but he never calls him to be holy. Holy places and holy people appear in the Bible only in conjunction with the covenant and the covenantal law that God gives to his chosen people, Israel. Later, Hamilton aptly observes that if the Lord can take dirt, and there it is, Adama, and make it holy, he can do this with a man, Adam. Isn't that great? Uh, that's what's, what's going on here, right? Why, why does God identify, kind of alluded to this, but why does God identify himself? Look what he says. I am the God, verse 6, of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Why would he identify himself as this? Why doesn't he just say, I'm the Lord of lords? 
He will in a minute, right? <laughs> I am. But, but why, why does he start off this way? For good old Moses. Help me out. What do we know? Promises. The promises, right? The promises that are given to the patriarchs. What else? There's a lot here that we could tease out of the text. Yeah. And remember, Moses already identified with his people. That's what got him into the Midian territory in the first place, into trouble. Yep. What else? Anything else? God is in control. God's plan will not be thwarted. I mean, there's a whole host of things, right? You could tease out of this covenantal God who, who has graciously made a pact with his people. And they may fail him, but he won't. That's, that's vital as you look at this text. Well, let's get to verse 7. Isn't this a great... I told you you're going to love it. And this is worth coming out this morning. Verse 7. Let's look at the text. It says, Then the Lord said, I've surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their cry. I know their sorrows. Does that sound familiar? God is intimately involved with His people. You may not think it, but if He knows the number of hairs on your head, He's intimately involved. Right? Every time I look at the sink after I wash my hair, I'm glad He knows. <laughs> right? Uh, I have come down, which is a typical phrase used of God. He has stooped down, but it's also symbolic. And then he's come down to deliver them, which there's the purpose, right? Why am I doing this? To deliver them from the land to a land that is both good and large, to a land flowing with milk and honey. Milk is probably the goat's milk, and honey is not bees' honey. I hear that often. That's not what we're referring to. We're referring to the sap of dates, uh, the uh, good old Jericho. Um, the... And, and it's, a, it's used, and I, I mentioned this at the top of page two of your notes, it just, it's referring to abundance, that, that these two major sources would just be flowing in the land, speaks of God's blessing on this territory. To the region of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the, uh, the Parasites, and so forth, right? <laughs> Hivites and the Jebusites. Third, uh, I think I mentioned in your notes, this, this group is mentioned several times here uh, as you go through. But let me back up just, uh, just to highlight there, it's in the bottom of page one, but God's purpose was to bring not only Israel out, but into, and that's vital here. It's not just to rescue them. He's going to bless them beyond comparison. And even the 12 spies who went in, remember that at Kadesh? They go in, they recognize the, even the, the 10 sorry saps who, who say we can't do it. They recognize that it's, it's uh, bountiful with crops. I mean, it's, it's amazing. And again, the Lord sees, He hears, and He knows, uh, which is just vital to this text. But let's go back to this passage and look at this then as we, we look at this. Um, Again, it's flowing with milk and honey, and then we see these, the list, <clears throat> excuse me, of the names. <clears throat> and there are 27 passages in the Old Testament that list uh, indigenous or local groups of peoples that live in the land of Canaan. Canaan is a people group. They, their territory is mainly here, the Canaanites, but they're such a predominant group <clears throat> that it becomes kind of a, a nomenclature for the whole territory. The land of Canaan 
it's, it's more than just the land of Canaan. But does that make sense? It just kind of oversees that. Uh, and so you have Canaanite becoming the broad generic term. And these, oh, stinky, don't look at that. We'll get to that. Uh, <laughs> these are Semitic groups, all right? <clears throat> there are Semitic groups that we see dwelling in the land. Um, <clears throat> questions on, on who they are? Uh, and you can see a breakdown of the territories. I know that map is very small. I should have included it in the notes. Um, kind of a breakdown of the territories. Um, <clears throat> I'm sorry? Oh, thank you. I, I am sorry. It's called Levant. Levant is the track of land that's primarily modern Israel and Lebanon today. Um, it was the crossroads of America, of America, of the Middle East, of the ancient world. In fact, there are two major highways. The first one is here, which is the, uh, the uh, coastal highway. And so for, to get to Egypt, to the Hittite territories, later into Greece or Rome. And then you also have the patriarchal highway, which long, goes along the spine. Uh, those are the two major highways, because in between, this is all mountain range. So it's very hard traveling this way is very difficult in the land of Israel, even today. Uh, you want to go north and south is the way, directions you want to go. Um, <clears throat> and the Israelites will go along the Patriarch high, Highway when they come in at Jericho and take over the territory. Yes. Many of them are descendants of, of Abraham or further back. All right. So, uh, but they are Semitic uh, most, many scholars will say this is Ham's descendants, uh, one of Noah's sons. All right. Let, yes. Um, distinguish the, the two Semitic to, I always just thought that was Jewish, because obviously that's in, in this context, that's a much larger it is. Uh, group of them. It, it is. It's a, a subpart of that. Can you explain that? Uh, Semitic is a language. Uh, so uh, you, you, you have... Um, isn't Arabic considered even Semitic, Dr. Bruce? Yeah, I think so. So Arabic, anything, well, yes, it is. Uh, so there's, there's great overlap between the languages, such as Italian and uh, French, or, well, uh, Latin, for instance. There's, there's overlap in common derivation. Um, you also have customs and culture that's very similar. That's why when the Israelites... It's one of the, we'll talk more about this, but this is why I think God says wipe them out because uh, so easily the Israelites could assimilate with these people groups, and they do. Picking up the worship of Baal or an Ashtaroth, that's very common in this land. So th they go back to one family group, and that one family group is Ham, a descendant of, of Noah, one of Noah's sons. Well, let's go back to the text because far more significant is what... Moses is going to be called to do. Verse 9, And now indeed the cry of the Israelites have come to me. I have seen how severely the Israelites oppress them. So now, go. That's the first of four times he will tell him. Uh, tell Moses, I will send you to Pharaoh to, king, to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. Now watch Moses' response. <clears throat> Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh or that I should bring the Israelites out of Egypt. There's two objections. What are they? Go and bring. Yeah. Uh, who am I to go to the Pharaoh and ask this? Uh, should I re 
help you remember God, what happened 40 years ago and what, you know, that whole ordeal. It's not the same Pharaoh, but I'm sure they all know who I am. Uh, And secondly, uh, I'm to bring out the Israelites? Last time, you know, they made a big to-do about me trying to take over, all right? So two objections. He replied, surely I will be with you. Isn't that like the Lord? Where does Moses' objection first start? With himself, not God. And God says, get your eyes off yourself, Moses. Look who I am. I will be with you. This will be your sign to you that I have sent you. When you bring the people out of Egypt, you and they will serve God in this very mountain. It's as good as done. That's the promise, right? That's your sign. That's, that's what's going to take place. I, I, you saw the slide, the next one, so let me just show it to you. Here's my, my question. What, notice, how has God already revealed Himself to Moses? What has He said about Himself thus far, what we know in the text? Help me out. Let's just make a list. We've already mentioned He's a covenantal God, right? In other words, He keeps His promises. What else does God say to, to Moses? I'm sorry? He is compassionate. I heard this one. He is omniscient, if I can put this, and all-knowing. Omniscient is all-knowing, by the way. (laughs) But he's omnipresent as well. Uh, He's these omni-attributes. He's omniscient, he's all-knowing, he's omnipresent. And what I mean by that is he knows exactly what the Israelites are going through. He knows where Moses is. Yeah, I mean, he details are important. Good. What else does he tell Moses here in the scene thus far? Yeah, there's the covenantal promises. I mean, Moses, should I rehearse to you how I cared for Abraham and how I cared for Isaac and how I cared for Jacob? What else? It says he's the deliverer. Yeah, he's a deliverer. God has a plan. <clears throat> and what else does he tell? Also, what does he tell uh, Moses? I'm with you, right? I'm with you. We could go on, but uh, if you have time, just go back and look at how God has revealed himself. He's the one who keeps his promises. He's compassionate. He's all-knowing and all of these things. And yet Moses says, whoa, I don't know. Because notice what he says in verse 13. Moses says to God, if I go to the Israelites and say to them, God of your fathers have sent me, they will say to me, what is his name? And what should I say to them? Now, These next few verses, volumes have been written by scholars on what's going on here, all right? Books have been written, essays, we could fill this whole room, literally, I think. Uh, it says, and, he, and God says to Moses, I am that I am. And there's different ways to render that, and we'll get to that in a minute. And he said, you must say this to the Israelites, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, you must say this is Israel, the Lord that's later we translate this as Yahweh, <clears throat> the God of your father, the God of 
Does this sound familiar? Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial from generation to generation. Go and bring together the elders of Israel and say to them, the Lord, the God of your fathers appeared. This, this term is visited. It, it's, so, it's a loaded term in the text. <clears throat> saying, I have attended carefully to you and to what has been done to you in Egypt, and I have promised that I will bring you out of affliction. And he mentions the uh, parasites and so forth. Verse 18, the elders will listen to you, which tells us, by the way, there's hierarchy even in Israel, even at this time frame. Later, the elders are the Sanhedrin. Well, these are your, your body of uh, Jewish men who are the leaders of the land. <clears throat> and the Lord your God, He has met with us. Verse 20, so I will extend my hand and strike Egypt with all my wonders. That's pretty foreboding, is it not? And I will do among them, and after that, he will release you. I will give the people favor with the Egyptians, so that when you depart, you will not go out empty-handed. Every woman will ask her neighbor and the one who happens to be staying in her house for silver items, gold, clothing. This is what the servants' dues should have been. And later in the Mosaic Law, when a slave is freed, there is pay time. And that's what the Israelites are doing. You will put these articles, watch this, on your sons and your daughters. What should be happening to sons? I love that. The Israelites wanted them drowned in the Nile. They're going to adorn them with gold. And you will plunder Egypt. And boy, do they. <clears throat> and remember to the to uh, an Egyptian, gold and jewels were taken into the afterlife. So not only did they destroy this life, they destroyed an Egyptian's afterlife. Just look at the treasures of Tutankhamun in his tomb, right? All the gold and treasures. Some say that's why Egypt went belly up at times, because their treasure was buried with them. Well, in this instruction that uh, God gives to Moses, there are three questions that I want us to ponder, all right? They are key in understanding the text. The first of these, who does not know God's name? Notice that. Moses says to him, hey, when they ask me, let's go back to the text, it says, if I go, they'll say, well, who, who should I say sent me? By the way, they never did ask that question. <laughs> Isn't that so true of us? At least I should speak for myself. Uh, you know, you make these, well, Lord, if, I, if we do this, you know, this, this is going to be a problem and this is going to be a problem. Those are usually not the problems. <laughs> I'm so short-sighted on what God's really doing. Uh, no, the problem is we needed sound and we needed a larger font on the PowerPoint. That's what we needed. So thank you, Paul. Is there any connection uh, to that I am here, God speaks, and when Moses answers in the bush, he says, here I am. There's no connection. I don't know anyone who'd make that connection. So um, there's not. Um, there is a connection, which we'll see in a minute, with Jesus. Uh, do you think it was an audible voice? I mean, it was not a question of Moses' mind. I'm thinking about Christians today, myself. Is it really God speaking, or is it what I wish, or this is. Well, remember. This is narrative literature, which narrative literature, you know what I mean by narrative literature, right? It's not, it's not a letter. Uh, this is recounting God's working with His people through history. Narrative literature <clears throat> has what we call a low degree of transfer. 
what do I mean by that? Um, it's not prescriptive, it's descriptive of how God is acting in time and, and space. So these are unusual events. Uh, this is pre-Mosaic law. This is, you know, and, and so it's the same with the book of Acts. I would argue it's not a normative book for today because, for one, uh, now we have the Holy Spirit. They didn't in Acts chapter 2. It came. So um, should we all have a burning bush experience? Probably not. <laughs> Could God operate this way today? Sure. And if He does, I'll give you your money back on your Israel trip. But, <clears throat> uh, I, I, you know... Uh, yeah, I'm, again, I'm not saying God couldn't work this way. Answer this question. Who is it that doesn't know God's name? Who's Moses referring to? What are your three possibilities? Without looking at your notes. <laughs> what are the three possibilities? Himself. Who else? This is not working well today. I don't know what's going on. The Egyptians, the Israelites, or Moses? They've all been argued by scholars. The most prevalent one is Moses. In other words, Moses is having personal doubt on the identity, etc., of what he's encountered. Isn't that interesting? Some say it's a secret name that God is revealing that when the elders hear it, they'll know, ah, he's truly a representative of God. I doubt that. And I doubt very seriously that the elders have forgotten who God is even after 400 years. All right. Uh, traditions, traditions, uh, they had been passed down. I think, as in your notes, I think Moses is expressing personal doubt and attempting to warrant an excuse. I mean, think about uh, those of you who have kids. It's amazing what your kids will bring out of the arsenal to try to argue. That makes no sense, you know. <clears throat> so I, I, I think Moses is just trying to, to garnish some uh, stall time. And, and, and chance to think. Secondly, and this is, Dick, where you were going with this, how do you render I am who I am? This is a difficult phrase. I, I think most scholars have taken this as, who causes to be what is? You go, oh, what does that mean? Right? In your notes, let me, I, uh, I think uh, Garrett in his commentary on Exodus defines this well. This is in that second paragraph at the bottom. His, that is God's identity, is not tied to any shrine, cult, city, people, or title. That is so key in the ancient uh, Middle Near Eastern world, right? The Nile, that's the God of the Nile. The sun, well, that's the God of sun, Ra, and, and, and on it goes. Baal is the God of lightning or storm. <clears throat> not this God. He exists independently of all things. He is only being for whom existence is part of his essence. Everything else is contingent on him, right? That's why it's present tense. I am. Not I was. I am. And you think about Jesus, right? What does he tell? A couple times it's recorded in the Gospels where he says, I am. He's making no wonder the religious rulers go berserko with Jesus' response. They understand. Jesus isn't claiming to be some great teacher. He's claiming to be God. And they blow a gasket, right, over that sucker. And so he says, everything is contingent on him. In simplest terms, he's the one eternal, all-powerful creator, God. Garrett couldn't, couldn't say it better. That's exactly what's entailed. When God says, I am, that's it. That's the verb. He uses 
God uses the noun in verse 15 when he says the Lord. That's where we get the term Yahweh. The Hebrew writing, of course, is from right to left. Um, how do we pronounce it? That's debated, and that's a whole other uh, discussion for us. But this becomes the Lord, and it's not a new term, but it's highlighted here in God's revealing of Himself to Moses. Questions on this one? This is key. <clears throat> not I was, not I will be, I am, which has no beginning or end, right? I just am. And the third question then to tease out of the text, and it's there in your notes as well, is, is God's words to Moses a response or a rebuff? In other words, there's some who think God's being a little cheeky, as they say in Scotland, uh, with Moses and saying, how dare you, you know, even question me? I don't think so. I think God is being very gracious with Moses. Uh, he's going to ratchet it up here when we get to chapter 4. Uh, he's going to get a little sick of Moses' excuses. But I think what we have here, and this is there in your notes, uh, Moses asks after God's name and Yahweh responds by providing not a label, a golden gay says in his commentary, but a theology. Isn't that great? I think that's what he's instructing Moses. And that's why he says the generations will be a memorial from generation to generation. In other words, I'm the one they worship. They have, they are, and they will because I am. I'm the God. Isn't that, you know, Moses, you're concerned? I'm with you. And who is the I that's with you? God Almighty. Right? What do you have to fear? <laughs> I've told you I've done it. I've made a promise. I'm going to keep my promise. In fact, I made a promise to Abraham, I'm making a promise to you. We'll be here on the same mountain with all the Israelites. You may not like that, but that's what's going to happen, right? That's, that's what it is. Well, we talked about the, the last section of this chapter, but I, I just want to mention in verses 21 and 22, God told Abraham, I mentioned that 400 years, he said the Israelites, this is in Genesis chapter 15, the Israelites will be in, slaves for 400 years. But do you know what he told, him, told Abraham? It's in there in your notes. I will punish the nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they, that is the Israelites, will come out with great possessions. Wow. God keeps His Word. You may not think it, and you may be in a spot you're saying, I don't, I don't see God's hand. God keeps His Word. His reputation is at stake, Right? Because he said he promises never to leave us nor forsake us. He promises to provide. And let me just give us three things to run with here as we get through this. We'll move. <clears throat> the first of these is, isn't it great? The Lord works through ordinary human beings to accomplish his work. He could have used angels, but he uses us. Matthew 28, you know the text, right? Help me out. What's the text? Matthew 28, 19, 20. Yeah, it's the Great Commission. Go, therefore, and, and make disciples. He didn't give that to just the frozen chosen, the elite of the saints. He gave it to all of us, right? Go and make disciples. Baptizing them in the name singular. It's a great Trinitarian text. The name is singular, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's a powerful text. But that's, that's our role. The Lord uses us. 
I mean, tell me, what does Moses bring to the table? When God's hand was on him when he was a baby, apparently, because he was beautiful, according to Mama and Stephen, right? Here's another for us to think about as we, we look at this text, and that is when, when it may seem that God is, this is what I keep harping on this morning, God is nowhere to be found. We need to remember that He does see, He does know, and He does care. Isn't that great? Psalm 34, just turn there briefly. You got to see this text. I'll give you one more application here in a second. But Psalm 34, 15 through 18, it says, The Lord pays attention to the godly and hears their cry for help. Uh, Verse 17, the, the godly cry out and the Lord hears. Verse 18, the Lord is near. Claim that verse this week if you're struggling. Marriage is dissolving. Kids are wayward, jobs on the line, under radiation. (laughs) The Lord is near, right? The Lord is near. Think of Moses. And then finally, a proper view of God distills the greatest fear and diminishes the most insurmountable problems. The problem with Moses, his eyes were on himself, not on God. And God had to smack him upside the head and say, Hey, do you forget who I am? You think the burning bush is something? I got a pillar of fire that is going to lead you. This is nothing. Just hang on to your hat because here we go. All right, on Isaiah 64, you can read as well. Thomas Watson is one of my favorite Puritan authors, and he's a quote from him at the bottom. God commands nothing but what is beneficial. O Israel, what did the Lord require of thee? But to fear the Lord thy God and to keep his statutes. To obey God is not so much our duty as our great privilege. Isn't that great? Any questions, comments, cries of outrage? I told you this is a powerful passage. You already knew that. But it's a great reminder, isn't it? Our God is on the throne. This one who's a covenantal God, he's compassionate, he's all-knowing, and he can deliver, and he is with you. Father, thank you for the promises that you have made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Promises that you made through one that would come and be our Redeemer, your Son, Jesus Christ. And Lord, our Redeemer is sitting at your right hand, interceding for us, not just during 8 to 5, but 24-7. And He knows. (laughs) He knows. Uh, We have a sympathetic high priest, and we are so grateful, Lord, that you would see fit to give us salvation, to help us in our walk, and, and to see us eventually glorified in your midst. And we just long for the day. Until then, may we keep our eyes focused on you, the author and the perfecter of our faith, our Savior Jesus Christ, in whose name I pray. Amen. Well, we'll journey chapter 4 next week, so if you have a chance to read it before, that's great. Exodus chapter 4. Have a great day. The sun's shining. There's more coffee and donuts before you go, so help yourself. <laughs>